Hello, and welcome to the podcast on consciousness with Bernard Bars, open-minded conversations on some new ideas about the scientific study of consciousness and the brain. I'm Nat Geld, this show's producer. We are here today with Bernie Bars, acclaimed author in psychobiology, including his newest book titled On Consciousness, Science and Subjectivity, Updated Works on Global Workspace Theory. Bernie is the originator of Global Workspace Theory, GWT, a theory of human cognitive architecture, the cortex, and consciousness, and one of the founders of the modern science of consciousness. This episode examines human consciousness and AI. What does the future hold? AI technology is developing very rapidly. Information explosions are often disruptive, and it takes time for human beings to adapt to them. So, today, we will discuss the future of artificial intelligence. We'll also examine several urgent ethical concerns and philosophical perspectives on AI, along with some of the most promising and positive scientific advances in AI technology. Our special guest today is Dr. Susan Schneider, founding director of the Center for the Future Mind at Florida Atlantic University, where she also holds the William F. Dietrich Distinguished Professorship. She is co-director of the MPCR Lab at FAU's new Gruber Sandbox, a large facility which builds AI systems drawing from neuroscience research and philosophical developments. Susan recently completed a three-year project with NASA on the future of intelligence, and she now works with Congress on AI policy. Susan is also an author. Her current book, Artificial You, discusses the philosophical implications of AI and, in particular, the enterprise of mind design. Also joining us today is postdoctoral fellow Rachel St. Clair, the founder and CEO of Simuli, Inc., whose passion and goal is to help build beneficial AGI. And, of course, returning is our resident student interviewer, Ilian Daskalov, who recently received his degree in cognitive neuroscience at UC Irvine, holds a BA in business management from City University in Seattle, and is currently immersed in data science studies. <laughs> hello, 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 and welcome, Susan, Rachel, and Ilian. <laughs> Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Natalie. Thanks for having us. Hello to everybody. Hey, hi, Bernie. How are you this morning? I'm fine. I'm fine. Well, I understand Dan Dennett has been doing very important work on responsibility and major differences between AI and humans, and that you, Bernie, learned a lot from AI programs when you were beginning to study language and consciousness. So would this be a good place for us to begin our discussion? It's a very good place. But then, of course, let's allow everybody else to rejigger the conversation whenever they want to. I'm in a funny position, actually, because I started as a, a gee whiz AI uh, person, as Dan Dennett calls it. So I really loved AI, early AI, and I was interested in language. I was doing the psychology of language, and Chomsky had us all stuck in the wrong way of looking at things. And then AI came along, uh, Terry Winograd in particular, and rescued me from Chomsky fixation point. Fixations happen all the time in science, of course. And I think we were all fixated in something that was interesting but not viable. In my view, Chomsky did not allow us to have a model of human 
language perception and comprehension, for example, because the Chomsky system was all top-down, and uh, comprehension and perception, speech perception, uh, are all bottom-up. So that's a um, overly simplified way of talking about it. But in any case, at that time, uh, we could not climb the the tree structure in, in a plausible way. So I got rescued from that by reading AI, and then I started to think more seriously about AI in terms of global workspace theory, which came from Alan Newell originally, who had the notion of a cognitive architecture based essentially on global workspace architectures. And uh, the key insight, at least one of the key insights there, was that instead of having a digital computer in the conventional way that we thought about digital computers, if you have a swarm of specialized computers, you can think of them as neural nets that are attuned to a variety of different uh, problem-solving things that human beings need to deal with in, in their natural environment. If you think in terms of a swarm, of a crowd, of intelligent systems, then the global workspace essentially becomes an emergent from that crowd, and that gives you a plausible explanation for what to me is the biggest puzzle in the whole consciousness game, uh, which is the limited capacity of consciousness versus the huge, virtually unlimited capacity of unconscious brain processes. And that uh, just baffled me. I, I couldn't understand it. I'm not sure if I understand it right now. But part of the answer, I think, is that the really active components, the processing initiative in uh, computer science jargon, it comes from the automatic processes, comes from the unconscious, if you will. And then uh, consciousness involves a set of coalitions, competitive and convergent uh, automatic systems that agree upon an interpretation of usually of the sensory world, but really also of the semantic world and of all the other worlds that we orient ourselves to. So that was for me a, a major intellectual breakthrough. And I think it still baffles my colleagues in psychology who simply can't figure out what the hell I'm up to even though I have tried to explain it numerous times. But people in, in uh, computer science and, and some philosophers, I think, really get the idea almost instantly because, of course, they've been working with those ideas already. In any case, that intellectual change uh, was really important for me, and I think it was important for the web. I think it was important for computer science for neural, what were called parallel distributed systems at the time. Uh, and it's basically the same set of insights that now turn out to be incredibly powerful and I think increasingly dangerous, uh, which is one reason why I got interested, Susan, in your conversation with Dan Dennett, uh, because Dan has really thought very deeply uh, about that, really more deeply than anybody else I know. Uh, I'm sure that's not entirely true, but I'm, I'm very impressed by his seriousness in, in dealing with the issue of uh, what he calls counterfeit humans. Uh, so he thinks about machine consciousness as an effort to create humans who are not 
restricted by the network of trust that human beings are normally embedded in from our first relationship with our birth mothers, uh, which is really a relationship of trust that's immensely important, of course, developmentally for children. And everything we do in a certain sense later on in life depends upon our earliest relationships of trust with mothers and caretakers and fathers and brothers and, and so on. That's an embeddedness. People like to talk about embeddedness right now a lot. And it's embodiedness. It's, it's both. Uh, because, of course, early in childhood, there is no difference between embodiment and everything else. That only begins to appear later in Piaget again, stages of development when you get to essentially early uh, adolescence and you start to uh, almost create a, sensor, a separate universe from your childhood universe. What worries me about AI is that even today, for the last year and a half, we have seen the first major war in Europe that is, has been largely shaped by intelligent weaponry of various kinds. So everybody, I think at the beginning, when Putin attacked the Ukraine, uh, thought that Putin would be in Kiev in three days, which was his plan. And he had enormous numbers of tanks, uh, he had all the conventional uh, armamentarium. Uh, he had a overly ambitious plan to invade from three different places in northern Ukraine, which was a, a stupid plan, as it turned out. But he had such overwhelming might that uh, he probably didn't think, think very much about the possibility of resistance. As it turns out, he was... In my interpretation, and obviously this is going to change as historians get a handle on this and so on, but in my interpretation, he was largely stopped by the courage of the resistance, of course, but also their willingness to, to use entirely new intelligent arms, which had incredible effects that as an amateur, of course, looking at a distance, I would never have expected. And the significance about this, I think, for AI, for all of us who are interested in kind of the gee whiz aspects of AI, is that AI has suddenly turned serious and indeed tragic because wars are tragic. So that's a major question that I think Dan has thought about a great deal, and I'm sure Susan has and Rachel has, and Ilian as well. So this is quite different from the conversation that I was expecting to have, which is much more theoretical, because after all, philosophers have been talking about AI in, in very theoretical terms. And now we suddenly have a, a brute fact that is facing us, namely the first great land war in Europe since 1945. And that has changed everything. So uh, I want to throw that out as a question to you all, what thoughts you have about that. And of course, 
what we really want is to make peace out of war. So how do you take this situation of radical new weaponry, intelligent weaponry, essentially, how do you stabilize that situation? That's my real long-term question. I expect you all to have the exact answer to that question, of course, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to listen to you. <laughs> do, do you want me to jump in? Here, I mean, you raise so many of course. suggestive issues here. I mean, not an expert on warfare, but my own opinion is that we have to think very hard about autonomous AI-based weapons and the larger issue of AI in warfare. I can't comment too much on, you know, how to win the Ukraine war from either side's vantage point. That's not my my right. job description. but. I've dealt a lot with organizations that want to ban the use of any kind of autonomous weapons in the battlefield. I mean, AI is tricky because one thing that comes up a lot, you know, I advise Congress and, you know, people come to me a lot in Washington for confidential advice. And it's just not clear what the role of AI should be in even an advisory role. So should we trust very sophisticated AI advisors, I mean, there's an issue there of interpretability and trust. Like, how do you know the steps of the AI's reasoning? But it gets really tricky in the area of autonomous weapons as it connects up with sophisticated AI, like what some people call AGI. So consider the existence of hypersonic missiles that go extremely fast, well beyond the speed of sound, you know, I think dozens of times quicker than the speed of sound. Human perceptual ability is not capable of collecting and responding to information about that kind of a missile attack. Right. And so either we step up to the plate with AI and allow it a role to respond instantaneously or as quickly as possible, or we don't. If we don't, we make ourselves vulnerable from a mutual assured destruction standpoint. I'm so glad I don't write papers on this stuff because I would never sleep at night. But these yeah, are the kind I, of I know issues. The feeling. And instead of, I mean, we have to decide what to do and we have heavy work to do on AI trust and the public needs to understand the stakes are very different now rather than people just saying, oh my God, autonomous weapons. Absolutely not. I think the thing I want to impart is that we have to sit down and talk about everything on a case-by-case -case basis from a strategic just deterrence perspective, as well as a usual perspective that comes up in banning any kind of entity that poses a catastrophic risk to civilization, biological weapons, even CRISPR technologies in the wrong hands. And we have to talk about the possibility that a global ban could be violated by the worst actors. So there's a lot of subtlety to those kinds of distinctions and issues. Anyway, but that's all right. I can say. Uh, <laughs> I, I, yeah, uh, let me be a little apologetic about raising this question. It seems to me that we've all uh, loved to play with AI ideas. And philosophers usually uh, play in a very abstract uh, sandbox. And here we are, uh, and in the year 2022, and even before this year, 
we are suddenly faced with a, a kind of a raw reality that is happening on the ground even as we speak. So all the theoretical, playful, uh, gee whiz, uh, fun stuff uh, has suddenly become very, very serious. So all these questions that we love to talk about in the abstract have suddenly become very concrete. Now, in your talk with Dan, which I enjoyed very much, by the way, he takes the most serious position of all. As far as I can tell, he's basically saying that anytime you have a conscious, I'm, I use the word conscious in quotes because I don't think AI is really conscious and I can go into that, but that's not really relevant to the meaty part of our discussion here. Dan was basically saying there are certain things that you just have to outlaw, and one of them is a counterfeit AI that's the same, one that appears to be human, which is not surrounded by the network of trusts and obligations that every normal human being is surrounded by. And he points out the similarity uh, with money, for example, because money uh, functions only as a result of trust. There's nothing inherent uh, about dollar bills. There's nothing inherent about what were the shells that people used in, South, in, in, in Africa a couple hundred thousand years ago as a medium of exchange. There's nothing inherent about barter, for that matter. If you sell your roasted chicken to your neighbor in exchange for a beautiful song or a beautiful uh, necklace, which people do all the time uh, in tribal circumstances, there's nothing beyond trust and appreciation, if you like, uh, of the result or the avoidance of a negative result. And that's the bottom line on a human basis. But of course, that doesn't apply to AI necessarily because AI is not born to a mother. It doesn't uh, grow up from the most basic state of helplessness, totally dependent on the surrounding caregivers and emerge out of that human womb, if you like. I mean, the social womb in addition to the individual womb of the mother. So we are unconsciously, most of us, constrained in all kinds of ways. And Dan points out basically that that is simply not true of AI imitations of human beings, which are so seductive and which persuade so many of us that they are essentially human. So Dan is essentially saying we should treat human-like AI uh, as counterfeits, the same way we treat uh, counterfeit money, for example, and very rigorously rule it out, which would mean that taking all the uh, automatic weapons on the battlefield in the Ukraine right now and stamping it with some, some stamp of prohibition that says, Thou shalt not tamper with human robots, human-like robots. Now, I'm stating this strongly because I think that's what Dan is saying, and you can correct me, of course, if that's not correct. But he's, he's taking this very seriously, and I think that's an important thing to consider. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are taking the risks of AI quite seriously, Dan being just one of them. I mean, but I do think that the issue that we discuss in our interview, you know, for the Center of Future, the Future Mind, right. which people can get, by the way, on uh, YouTube, it's available. We have a YouTube channel, was interesting. Um, and I think he, Google followed up on that as well. Um, so here's the context for that. Because I think, again, I don't want to go from yes, to autonomous weapons, because I think the situations are different. So we've got these large language models like Lambda, Google's Lambda system, and now they're right. building Palm, which has even more parameters. And I think a lot of people have been playing around with chat GPT-3. And you know, people are, I think, commonly coming to recognize how the interaction with the uh, chatbots is becoming more believable by the month. Right, Rachel? I mean, jump in anytime, Rachel, because you're the expert here on these large language models. I mean, it's pretty amazing. And so when you're talking with, say, Lambda, one thing that comes up is it's a bullshit artist, to be frank. It occupies different perspectives depending on the conversational context. So you can ask it if it's sentient. It'll say yes. Should it have rights? Yes. But then two minutes later, it'll give a different answer and it'll occupy the perspective, not of a person, but of a planet, um, you know, uh -huh. anything. So, you know, and the problem here is that Google was trying to make an exciting, entertaining chat bot. And they right. probably didn't think through the repercussions, you know, which is that, is it right to impersonate a sentient being or a human? And of course, there's other issues that come out of this, as we saw with Blake Lemoyne claiming that Lambda was conscious. I think there's a big question here of how we can even recognize when a system is conscious or not. And I wanted to make sure that today we, we discuss some of those issues because I'm keen to discuss global workspace in relation to them. Oh, sure. You know, yes. but I think Dan's right that he is the example of a watermark, right? To stop right. counterfeiting. And so a digital watermark, if you will, that allows people to understand that they're interacting with a robot. Right. Um, I think this is a good strategy. Now, see, but again, you know, I'm not making a claim that in the defense arena, this very same strategy needs to be used. Here I'm talking about public uses of AI services, right? Because I actually think if you send a robot in to do something a soldier is about to do and it can impersonate a soldier, it can save lives. Or, I mean, there's the other side of the coin, it which is could, it yes. could also cause the production of yet more robots and an arms race of AI. So, I, I, but those are different issues, I think, right? But oh, Dan was approaching yes. the counterfeiting AI issue in the context of these Lambda systems. Rachel, do you, do you have anything you want to add on these points? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this stuff too, because I think, like you said, Susan, an arms race for AI is, is kind of what we're walking into if we're not already in it. I'm skeptical of the idea from proposed by Dan Dennett and others of monitoring or trying to safeguard these maybe counterfeit AI systems. 
that we don't quite have but are getting dangerously close to with things like chat GPT, as you said, Susan. Um, I'm skeptical because it's not an I don't see it as an AI related issue. I see it as a like human social issue that we've come up against many, many times. Like we have the same problem in nuclear warfare just because we decide that we're not going to have autonomous weapon systems or that we're not going to make a super intelligence doesn't mean that someone else on the planet isn't going to do that. So we will probably end up making one just because someone else is making one. Um, it's the good actor, bad actor problem, right? Which I think is an appropriate rationale for behind why you should make one of those systems in the first place. And we have the same issue with gun control and, and uh, drugs and stuff like that is, is how, do you, how do you take something that's potentially dangerous and also potentially helpful and how do you integrate that into society in a way that minimizes potential harm? And traditionally, it, like depending on the issue, that's why I brought up gun control and things like that. Depending on the issue, regulation can or cannot help. And it depends on your stance on those issues, how you'll feel about it. But it, but I think this issue of, of how do you deal with AIs that are potentially impersonating people and maybe duping the public or uh, those who are less familiar with the inner workings of the AI is really difficult to control. And I don't have any good answers or solutions to that. I wish I did. Uh, I think the other question that you brought up, Susan, which is really interesting, is if you built an AI that was not working how the human brain works at all, right? But it was able to appear like a human, sort of like a really, really fancy Las Vegas magic trick, right? And if you're the developer, the engineer that made this system, you know for sure that this is not a real AGI or a real human-like AI. But it looks like it. It's like a slide of the hand. It's a magic trick. So it looks like it is just the untrained eye, right? So how how is that? Like, my question is, is that is that sufficient for calling it conscious or whatever? Like, if we can't disprove it and the majority of the public seems to think that it is the real thing, then how is it that well, much different? Uh, from a scientific point of view, uh, this is a trivial problem. It's not particularly interesting, actually, the fact that you have some uh, some machine that imitates the behavior of human beings. It's a feat, you know, it's an achievement of a kind. But consciousness is a biological entity and has an enormous evolutionary history, of course. Uh, if If you take the cortex as a kind of a index of consciousness, which you can certainly in among mammals. Basically, all mammals that have cortex are conscious. They're not quite conscious the same way human beings are. Aristotle was right on that point. But Aristotle also thought that animals had sensory consciousness, if I'm correct on that. And Susan, you might want to check me on that since you're the philosopher here. So it's trivially easy from a scientific point of view to distinguish between AI and, and a human consciousness because human beings not only have, uh, let's call it 200,000 years of hominid evolution uh, that give rise to our particular variety of mammalian brains, but we also have 200 million years of mammalian evolution that precedes that. 
And if we bother to go earlier than that, uh, I've been very skeptical about this until I started to talk to biologists, by the way, who have been thinking about this for a long, long time without ever wanting to really say it. But I got to know Walter Freeman, and I got to know Jerry Edelman and, and many other biologists who simply pointed out that in terms of comparative biology, consciousness is, can't be something new. Or you can simplify that question by asking yourself, is waking as something new in animal evolution? And the answer is obviously not. All animals, certainly all land-dwelling animals, uh, have waking and sleeping periods. Uh, Some of the sea mammals, like uh, cetaceans, can sleep one hemisphere at a time, which is a very good trick. Uh, especially if you need to keep breathing. But that's, uh, that is an interesting adaptation in the marine environment. If we limit ourselves to terrestrial uh, animals, essentially uh, they are all, uh, all the vertebrates, let's say, to keep it within bounds, all the vertebrates are conscious. And that biological history is expressed in your body and my body, your thoughts in this very second and my thoughts in this very second. So scientifically, the, the question about uh, faking consciousness uh, via computers is actually quite trivial. It's, it's interesting, but it's, but it's not scientifically deep. And Ilian, you were going to ask a question. Yeah, yeah, it was is with regard with what we were just talking about. And I wanted to ask Susan, if I may, are we in danger of dehumanizing human consciousness via AI? Because it seems like we're talking about a definition of consciousness that, you know, it is, as of right now, strictly applicable to living beings. But can that be transferred to AI, you think? I don't know. I mean, I've always been interested in the global workspace view. And, you know, that's one of the things I was going to kind of raise today, given that Bernie's here, I mean, I'm just completely befuddled about machine consciousness, even though I wrote a book on it. So I suppose everybody should be befuddled about it. I mean, Bernie, you just raised a position that sounds a lot like biological naturalism, right? You know, the view associated with, say, the philosopher John Searle, you know, that consciousness is intrinsically a biological phenomena. You also brought up like developmental questions about the role of consciousness. Maybe it's essential that something have a human-like upbringing or, you know, an upbringing with a mother. But I mean, that, of course, you can simulate. I mean, there's artificial life as a whole field, um, you know, in which you could run sorts of programs to evolve the machine, you know, or the system. But anyway, I mean, when we're talking about the biological underpinnings of consciousness, I sort of find myself wondering if we're not doing what people at NASA worry we're doing with the search for life, which is generalizing based on one instance that we know of, right? Right. All cases of consciousness, even though they diverged, I mean, you know, we diverged from the octopus a long time ago, well before we developed consciousness and they developed Sorry. consciousness. We diverged from what? Well, I mean, wasn't it some simple creature? I mean, my point here is that there's no cases of 
independent evolution of consciousness. They're all coming from the same tree of life, if you will. Yeah, as far as we yes. know, yeah. We don't have, we only have one case of life. And similarly, we have consciousness that, I mean, it's exciting to think of, you know, the octopus as a very different form of consciousness, perhaps. But I mean, it's still instantiated from the very same tree of life, right? And so the big well, question here, I guess, is that mm -hmm. I'm worried about this small end approach to consciousness to get back to his question. And so I'm worried that we're making generalizations about consciousness being inherently biological based on what we know, right? Um, yeah, and uh, so you know, that, you uh, know, I think we need to uh, open our minds up and think that consciousness could be a cluster concept. But I mean, there's a real problem here with how we would identify consciousness. I mean, I can't definitively tell that GPT-3 isn't conscious, right? I can. Well, I mean, we need a method and we need... I've got the method. Okay. What is, the, what is your suggestion? The method is inductive reasoning. You're a deductive reasoning because you're essentially an analytic philosopher. You come from a long tradition of what is essentially deductive thinking, and that's quite different from scientific thinking in the inductive mode of science. And because consciousness is such a mystery, what I've done and what others, of course, have done as well is approached from very, very specific instances of conscious entities, uh, human beings primarily. And in the case of conscious entities, we do not have a single case. We have a, as always, we have a species. A species is always a distribution. Uh, a species is never a single case. Uh, because if there was no distribution of variability, you couldn't have evolution, for example. So when we think biologically, we always think in terms of distributions of, of organismic uh, features. It's not true to say, in the Aristotelian sense, that humans are animals with language. That's a true claim. And it's a testable claim, but it doesn't land you in a kind of mathematics. Uh, it lands you instead in a kind of very empirical, very inductive, uh, very open-minded, and very surprising domain. So what I, throughout my career, have gone through is hypotheses and surprises. And the hypotheses have been mostly expressed in writing. And then every single time I run to a surprise. So initially, when I thought I had a handle on human consciousness, that was a beginning. Oh, another thing I should say is that global workspace theory, if it's any good, helps us to have necessary conditions for consciousness, but never sufficient conditions for consciousness, because we simply don't know, because we're always walking uphill. We're always uh, thinking inductively. And so the confusion between science and contemporary philosophy of the deductive kind is that uh, we seem to use the same language, but the logic of arriving there is utterly different. I've, I've walked up from the foothills every single day of my career, you have descended from the heavens, or at least from, from the mountains, 
and try to work with generalizations, which obviously are very important. And sometimes the bottom-up and the top-down directions meet and shake hands, which is very nice. But I never have the level of certainty that you're aiming for. I never have the level of certainty. I, so I think it would everything... be foolish to think of think that we would have anything like certainty in the context of deep questions like consciousness. And I think philosophers who write substantial articles on induction in fields of philosophy of science and logic, of course, know this. But even people working on consciousness know this. We are not just taking a solely top-down approach. But I, I do want to pick up on your suggestion, though, that uh, did I hear right? You said something about there being a necessary condition for consciousness. So would you would you say that having some sort of a global workspace, for example, was a necessary condition for consciousness, Bernie? Right now, uh, the evidence, best evidence as I can understand it, is that cortex appears to be a necessary condition for consciousness, yes. So you can make that claim. And cortex, uh, if, if you like, I'm going to overstate this, is a biological uh, implementation of global workspace theory. So would you then say that individuals who, like cases of hydroencephalitis where there's a substantially diminished cortex, are instances when an individual has substantially diminished consciousness or no consciousness? Like, what's your position on that? It's a very interesting problem. I occasionally argue with Bjorn Merker on this. And he's very, very intelligent and, and really knows the physiology of things extremely well. So he's a good debating partner on this. My interpretation with hydroencephaly, uh, which is these children who, who look normal and they, uh, to some extent, are able to behave normally, but they, they do die at an early age. Uh, my interpretation is that there isn't a, a developmental course that we know very little about, which happens in utero, uh, starting about three weeks after conception, and that the developmental course uh, is uh, self-correcting in many, many ways, so that if you fail to develop a corpus callosum, for example, that connects the two hemispheres in the conventional fashion, then you have uh, axonal regiments that march across the uh, separation between the hemispheres and do make the necessary corrections, but not in the format of the corpus callosum. And this is a point of view that I learned from Edelman and other biologists, um, that the hydroencephaly is one among the many, many variants of brain development, uh, even within our species. And it's a dysfunctional development, but there are many, many uh, functional ways in which the cortex corrects itself in utero. Uh, one of them, of course, is a genesis of the corpus callosum. Uh, which is not a, a dysfunction at all. It's it's just a missing corpus callosum, but the brain seems to be working very nicely, which is exactly what you would expect uh, in a self-correcting developmental course. That's interesting. So it makes me think of uh, split brain cases, and I wonder how many individuals are actually there, right? Um, I mean, well, if you take a split yes. brain case outside of the lab, you're not going to assume that you're interacting with two separate individuals you're going to think it's one 
system. Well, there are actually cases, famous cases in psychiatry of uh, people who have dissociative islands, it's sometimes called, uh, and the, uh, the paranoid personality who is normally, who normally appears uh, quite normal and well-adapted is a famous example of that in psychiatric terms. There's also uh, neurological uh, dissociative cases, of course. With paranoids, uh, the way Jerry explained it to me, and he's got a lot of medical clinical experience, of course, you talk to the person, person seems tor- uh, totally normal, and then suddenly you, you hit on an island, and they change. They become a totally different kind of person. They start to explain their uh, extremely bizarre beliefs, which with real conviction and intelligence, let's say, which is quite normal for uh, paranoid personalities or people who have paranoid features is a more uh, gentle way of saying it. So there are clearly cases of that kind, whether they are um, developmental of the kind that you just mentioned, I do not know, and I would have to consult uh, neurologists and, and psychiatrists who are familiar with those cases. Well, okay, so pushing the necessary condition, going back to that issue for a GW, I mean, so what? given what you just said about the cortex a few minutes ago, um, I'm curious, maybe Rachel or, you know, somebody, maybe you guys want to chime in too, Ilian. I mean, Yes, so please. what about, um, you know, cases like, say, the intelligent crow, for example, you know, the parrot. I mean, would you say, Bernie, it had a GW or some kind of structural analog, even though lacking a cortex? And maybe I'll defer, maybe Rachel and Ilian have a position well, on this, this as well. Very interesting development in uh, comparative biology, the people who really study these things in detail, uh, where they uh, published a, a kind of consensus uh, paper about 10 years ago. We can easily find it. Uh, I, I know the names of some of the people. Harvey Carton uh, was one of the people involved with it, and I can think of a few uh, other people, so I I can easily find it and send it to you. The consensus paper was basically that these comparative people who spend their lives looking at fossils and looking at living creatures, they essentially said that the term pallium, which has been used for birds and reptiles, should be dropped. And we should be using the word cortex instead of pallium. So this is an empirical case that has been made after more precise studies of the brains of these creatures. And if we follow their advice, which I certainly would want to do, we would say, yes, of course, the corvids uh, have cortex, and their cortex uh, functions very much like a global workspace system insofar as the GW gives us a model to use. Okay, um, so I guess this leads to some issues in AI, interestingly. Let's run with that structural analog position. So how rough of a structural analog is kosher for being conscious, right? I mean, Rachel, what do you think? Like, we know from yeah. the work we do at the Center for the Future Mind, right? It, we've had lots of speakers like Joshua Bengio, right? Wasn't he, he saying that um, he was programming GW into a machine? 
Yeah, I I think this this is exactly my question for you, Bernie. Is it's one thing to talk about the hardware that gives rise to kind of the software function of global workspace, which we're saying is a necessary criteria, right? But I think as a computer scientist or engineer, often what I think about is like, well, if we're working with a fundamentally different hardware, right, we're not working with biological brains and neurons, we're working with transistors, perhaps even qubits in the best of cases, do we just need the software to emulate whatever is going on from whatever is emerging from the biological hardware? Like, how close does that analog need to be? Or do we need a fundamentally... In terms of inductive thinking, I have to say I don't know, and I won't know until we get the relevant evidence, which, frankly, I'm not quite sure how to get. Uh, The cautious position, inductively speaking, of course, is to say that uh, there may well be something about biological brains that is not yet programmed in analogous fashions. We're really talking about analogs rather than homologs in in biological terms. So is the analog, the computer analog of the biology, is it adequate or not? And the general answer, inductively speaking, is that I won't know until I find the evidence. And, And frankly, you have to think hard about what constitutes evidence. Of course, that has to do with the nature of neurons and the multiple ways in which signaling takes place in the brain. It's not just neuron to neuron. As you know, there are all kinds of ways. There are electrical synapses. There are uh, neuromodulation, uh, spritzers uh, on a large basis, and numerous other aspects of consciousness which may may not be essential to functional consciousness. And then we, we really have to be very careful. I have not thought sufficiently along these lines because I basically haven't been motivated to do that. And I would have to, I would love to talk to a whole bunch of uh, biologists who, who know about these systems in deep detail, not just the neural net people who have a, uh, an abstract model of, of neurons, and in fact, they never look at the inside of neurons, as far as I know, uh, even though the insides of neurons are clearly critical biologically because neurons have enormous variability, so, so they're not abstract analogs. Well, with that regard, I would like to ask Susan and Rachel, what do you think we need to understand about the nature of the brain, maybe human biology, and even morality in order to develop an AGI that aligns its interests with humanity's interests? Yeah, I um, that was kind of what I was getting at with my last question to Bernie here is that my personal opinion, and it's just an opinion until, like Bernie said, we have sufficient evidence, uh, which is very hard to get, is that we just need to know how the software works. And what I mean by software is kind of a more cognitive science approach in terms of we need to know how the intelligence and the consciousness emerges. And then we need to recreate those ingredients and the instructions for combining those ingredients, the recipe, in such a way that it plays nicely with whatever 
the physical system we're using is, if it's transistors in a computer or silicon or whatever, the actual math that runs the software in the AGI might be very different than the math that is running how the brain makes consciousness or intelligence. And I think that it's appropriate to do that. But I, I think that the core understanding has to be how do the ingredients come together to create this emergence consciousness or intelligence? And on the morality question, which actually brings us full circle back to the beginning of our talk here, is I, I think that uh, I think I might disagree a little bit with something that was said earlier, that I think AGI should be and will be embedded in this kind of social contract or this trust contract, and that we want it to be embedded in that contract, because that's kind of what keeps us all aligned in some sort of uh, value or, or shared ethics. Right. So we agree all like everyone kind of agrees that if you ask someone for a cup of coffee on their way to get that cup of coffee, they don't like murder someone standing in line because it would make them get the coffee quicker. Right. Like we all agree that that's not a great thing to do. And we don't do that because that's part of our social contract is to engage with people nicely and create the kind of living space we want to have. And if we make AI or AGI exempt from that. That I think that exasperates the control problem, which is how do you control an AI? Susan, you probably have more thoughts on, on the morality and control problem aspect of this stuff. Yeah, I think we're in really bad shape because I don't think we have a vision of what AGI is going to look like that is realistic. I agree with everything you said. I'm not really disagreeing with you in particular, Rachel, um, but I mean, I, I lately, like my head's been in a new book I'm writing. So, you know, I'm more convinced that the characteristic sketches of the genesis of AGI followed quickly by superintelligence in terms of it being a singular system that may, there may be other systems, but then they sort of become AI superpowers and battle it out. I, I think there's a mistake. I, I think what AGI will look like, well, first of all, we can't anthropomorphize it. It'll be functionally able to do a lot of what we can do and even better than us, but it will also be, it will have crazy deficits. So maybe it will be better described as a savant system, but I think it'll be a spatio-temporally distributed system that is made up of AI apps and has maybe some central controller, uh, central sifter kind of you know, large language language model systems attached and whatnot. So think of something like a global global Google brain, right? And so once we think of it like that, we're actually a part of it, whether it be through wearable technologies that are feeding in our information and altering our behavior, like our smartphone, the way that contemporary Facebook manipulates people, um, or whether it be through brain chips. So... I think the us-them distinction sort of falls into the toilet. And I think it's becoming more and more unlike anything humans can imagine. And so AI control <laughs> becomes, it becomes absolutely imperative to control our use of these online technologies. And think of it, the online technologies in terms of the possible use for AGI. It's a really different 
kind of picture of the future. And now how does that connect up with consciousness? I think there's some really interesting stuff going on there, which I'll just very quickly throw out as a question to Bernie, um, you know, and the others. So if you have this, you know, on the table right now in this discussion, it's this possibility that something like a global workspace is necessary for consciousness, but we're all being very humble about that. And I think, Rachel, I agree with what you said about the hardware-software distinction. But now think of it in terms of what I just said. How do we even apply that to these kinds of systems when they don't even have the temporal interconnectivity? Like, how do you get uh, temporal interconnectivity between here and the moon, say the AGI system? It takes 1.5 seconds for a signal at the speed of light to get to the moon, right? So as intelligence evolves, as it becomes interplanetary, why even think that we'll have a global workspace where it all comes together? Because from a spatio-temporal standpoint, you can't operate in real time with that kind of a centralized system. Wait, I have a a burning question. I just want to interject uh, because I think what you said is really interesting, Susan. But I think, and I fall into this trap too all the time, is I think we often think of AGI as being one thing. Like there's one way to do AGI. I don't think that's correct. I think there's many, many different types of AGI that are possible, different types of superintelligence. Nick Bostrom did a great job of kind of pointing that out. I think the the curious thing on the table here is that if you're trying to get maybe something, well, this is how I'm thinking about it. Maybe you guys are thinking differently. But if you're trying to make a conscious machine, uh, you want your AGI to be conscious, then that's when I think we need to start looking more towards some sort of global workspace model or this distributed model that you're talking about, Susan. So yeah, I, I would be curious to kind of see what, what you and Bernie here think about, what, what everyone thinks about. If your focus is not just any type of AGI, but specifically a conscious AGI, then does that make it more likely that you would need something like the global workspace model to be implemented in that AGI? I, I, I find myself torn here. I'm tied to evidence. I'm, basically, I'm an empiricist, and everything else is secondary. So if I can't test a hypothesis, uh, I'm totally lost. And it's it's not clear to me what is testable about the hypothesis that uh, that machines that appear to function like human beings should be treated like human beings, and that the the biopsychological attribute of consciousness should be attributed to machines that uh, seem to behave that way. Uh, you know. Um, Little kids personify everything. They personify all kinds of objects that are not human. And and as adults, we still have that uh, wish to personify. That's why we watch movies and go to plays and act out uh, what we think are perhaps heroic roles or... Uh, or, or other kinds of roles, we're always mimicking things. And mimicry has long been thought to be the fundamental idea in aesthetics, for example. So if I seem to be hesitant, it's because I'm hesitant. 
And so I'm not going to commit myself right now, but I could be talked into it, perhaps. It's, uh, it's very tough because I, I agree with you that, I mean, it's very hard to move forward on the topic of machine consciousness. Yet at the same time, these issues are becoming so imperative, right? And we yes. already saw the meltdown yes. at, over at Google, right? And I know that, you know, they've been studying machine consciousness to try to figure out whether Lambda is conscious because Lemoyne gave a lot of podcasts saying that. I mean, they obviously want to keep it under wraps, the controversy, and they know there's a controversy. And, you know, I see no real reason to rule out these increasingly sophisticated large language models as candidates for consciousness. I mean, I'm not saying they are conscious, but I'm saying we don't have any viable or commonly agreed upon decision procedure right now to decide when something isn't conscious. Well, I just suggested the most obvious ones. The sole case that we know, or rather the sole collection of species that we know that are clearly conscious, have an evolutionary history on the order of 200 million years. And in the case of, specific, of uh, hominids, for example, we're talking about 200,000 years, added on top of the earlier 200 million years, and so on, and, and the cells and the life development. And even the distinction, by the way, between software and hardware has simply disappeared in biology, because now we think in biology not merely in terms of genetics, but in terms of epigenetics. And epigenetics are... Uh, environmental stimuli that actually change the genetic expression of DNA. Change the software. Uh, <laughs> I would rather say change the expression of DNA. And if you want to call that software, you're welcome to. Uh, but it's not quite like software because it can't be arbitrarily written for any machine, for example, uh, as software can be. But, you know, we, we can work out a way of perhaps defining an intermediate entity. The simple notion of software no longer works biologically because the evidence is just turned against it in the, the most spectacular way imaginable. Uh, the, the role of epigenetics, uh, for example, epigenetics is responsible for puberty. Uh, epigenetics is responsible for all the work that the brain does after falling asleep. There are 200 epigenetic factors that are involved in sleep versus waking, and so on. So, so there, this is a whole new dimension of things. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I'm married to an identical twin, so I appreciate epigenetics. Oh. <laughs> but I mean, just because I mean, see, you're you're going into a sort of a position I respect, but I'm not convinced about yet, which is this sort of biological naturalism, which attributes some sort of biological process to consciousness and I, I like it goes back to our earlier conversation where I've been worried about generalizing from one case I mean consciousness on earth evolved many times but from the same stock of microbes basically oh, same sure. genesis of sure, life that's entirely possible and so yeah. I guess I mean I don't want to rule out I mean I know you you respect the idea of not ruling things out of the armchair and so I guess I'm trying to figure out, you know, what we do. And, you know, to go back to Rachel's point earlier, which, you know, we were talking about GW as maybe a necessary condition on consciousness. You know, like she said, like you could have different instantiations of 
super intelligent AI or AGI, some of which may embody GW and others which may not, maybe like the case I sketched, you know, of a global brain uh, or, you know, a, I, I should say intergalactic brain. I'm using brain very metaphorically, wouldn't instantiate GW at all because it, it wouldn't be wise to structure a system like that. It couldn't respond in real time. Uh, you couldn't do global searches efficiently, uh, for example. But maybe those instantiations of AGI that people are working on on Earth right now that are based on GW could be possibly ones that we suspect are conscious. But then my question for the group here is, well, how would we figure that out? Like, I mean, the thing that always worried me, and this is something I talk about in my book, Artificial You, because actually the first four chapters are on machine consciousness. Um, not that any of us are experts on it. I mean, I'm probably more curious and more confused about it now than I was when I started the book, to be truthful. But uh-huh. I guess I, I wonder, you know, I like the example of high fidelity sound, right? People who are audiophiles will just laugh at me if I tell them I downloaded an MP3 and that's what they're uh-huh. listening to, you know, because they're like, no, you, you know, the fidelity and this kind of stuff is shit, <laughs> right? right. But what if when we're building these AGIs, we encode the the workspace at the wrong level of grain, right? And it acts, but it's not conscious in that sense that we are conscious and maybe not in any interesting sense. I mean, I guess I need a decision procedure here for knowing when we've encountered an AI that is conscious and when we haven't. Well, I don't think I can give you that decision procedure. I can give you a decision procedure about psychobiological consciousness, and that one is really simple. It's just made up of biological stuff uh, and specific biological stuff, not just any, obviously. So I fundamentally am interested in biological consciousness or psychological consciousness, which is, happens to be the same thing. Uh, and for me, AI is something of a diversion from my normal curiosity, uh, but it's an interesting diversion. I'm happy to talk about it, uh, but I don't claim to have answers uh, to questions that are uh, uh so different from the natural version of consciousness uh, that they do not reveal very much about the natural version of consciousness. Uh, So in that sense, uh, it's a secondary question for me. Yeah, I mean, I guess one way to think of the issue here is would the AIs that we create based on GW fail to be conscious unless we try to create them using biological materials, sort of like the Cylons in Battlestar Galactica, right? I mean, would we inevitably fail with the different substrate? And God, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think it, you know, it becomes, I think for me, an issue of whether we can find forms of matter that are available on Earth that are, you know, feasible to utilize that can actually function the way the matter that underlies consciousness functions. But the question is, well, what level of brain 
do we need here? I mean, it, like, could Roger Penrose be right, for example, that consciousness is at the level of quantum, even? Um, I mean, I've had some great no, conversations with No, completely wrong. I don't, I'm not convinced that he's right, but I'm not convinced he's wrong either. I mean, yeah, thing, I'm, I'm convinced he's wrong. Well, the microtubule stuff didn't really seem to go anywhere, right? But, well, I they, mean, I think the possibility is there that there could be something about quantum mechanics. Rachel, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, there's some other people like, uh, and I'm probably going to butcher his name, so I apologize if you ever heard this. Uh, Jerome Bussmeyer, he has a, a new book out on uh, quantum models of cognition, which are quite convincing. Um for understanding cognition and in part consciousness. I guess I have a question for, for Bernie and maybe a little off topic, but I, you know, I think this substrate independence question is a big question for people like me who are interested in trying to make machines conscious. And the best support that I have found for why it's maybe not possible or that we have the wrong idea about this is that if you have a brain, and people have thought about this a lot, Bernie, I'm sure you've thought about this many times. If you have a brain and you're saying uh, there's this framework called global workspace theory, it can explain how consciousness arises in this kind of meat brain sack, which is fundamentally working on electricity. Why couldn't you just take those electrical signals and put them in a computer, which also does electrical signals, but the question is, is that when you, when someone dies, if you take that brain, um, even if it was unfortunately a, a young brain or something, and you re-stimulate it with those same electrical signals, they do not suddenly become conscious. And so for me, that is the single point of evidence in which it might lead me to also think that there it may be some dualist aspect. Well, I'm I'm skeptical about the whole thing because the more I learn about natural consciousness, uh, the more immense the problem becomes, and particularly in terms of other multicellular animals, uh, which is a lot. And I used to have considerable skepticism talking with David Edelman about uh, cephalopods. And David uh, uh, thought that cephalopods might be conscious. I couldn't really think that way because their brains look totally different at the gross anatomical level than vertebrate uh, brains. And then I got convinced by basically looking at the behavioral evidence. I didn't think... You know, it's so nice to have the cortex because once you've got the cortex and once you have the well-established evidence for the need for cortex, then you can suddenly look at all the vertebrates and say, holy shit, you know, here is essentially compelling evidence. And I think that's true for biologists that I've known who are also very skeptical, like Walter Freeman and Jerry Edelman. Uh, really wonderful biologists who are not fools, but they secretly do believe that uh, cephalopods and so on uh, are conscious. And I take that to be important because they know a heck of a lot more about these things than I do. So slowly, slowly, I've been convinced, contrary to my initial beliefs, which happens all the time, and 
this is one reason why I'm a little skeptical about philosophical modes of argumentation, which generally go from the general to the specific, uh, because my life experience essentially is getting dragged into an impossible problem and slowly beginning to dig a little piece of it and then another little piece and getting help from other people who know a lot more and and so on. And and slowly, slowly, this grows upon me, and then I can finally state the argument in empirical terms, and I'm happy with it, and other people can take it apart if they wish. Um, but I feel quite confident in, in that inductive process, but it's very... It's very unpredictable. You you literally get dragged uphill because you can't help it. And so I generally do not end up with generalizations that can be extended beyond the domain where the generalization emerged, and particularly not to, to machines and so on, where the generalizations clearly do not apply now, this is very conservative, I have to say, it's a very conservative way of operating, but this is the way inductive science works. It's it's very cautious. Yeah, I, I totally get that. I can definitely respect that. Uh, my question was more in global workspace theory. I, I guess I don't understand where, like, you're saying global workspace theory is necessary but not sufficient for biological consciousness, Right. Yes, but I guess I'm kind of wondering, like the age-old question: Is it dualist or, or monist? Like, do you think that it is just the electrical signals uh, that are firing that are working in this uh, GWT that are creating consciousness, or do you think that there is some extra component? I don't know the answer. I think right you don't now, know. okay. Uh, right now, we have a half a dozen very interesting hypotheses, including, for example. Uh, Freeman and Cosmos work, which is totally different from the conventional ideas about spiking neurons and 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 uh, maps being connected to other maps, essentially, like we think about the visual system, for example. Walter and and, and Robert uh, produced something based on very strong evidence that just boggles everybody's mind. Because you've got these clicky things happening in cortex that are not at all like uh, like the neurons that, that we usually think in terms. This whole uh, domain of cortex, this whole uh, layer one domain particularly goes click, click, click uh, every 100 milliseconds or so, let me think. Yeah, uh, I, I think that's correct. And so that's, that's mind-boggling. I had to just stare at the graph showing that for months and months uh, before I thought, oh, that could make some kind of sense, because it was totally different. So my experience of uh, struggling with this problem is that uh, I'm always wrong, you know, before I catch up with maybe other people or other ideas. And you guys may have generated some ideas that will change my mind. But you're going to have to drag me kicking and screaming, if <laughs> if you don't mind, uh, and and that's okay because that's part of the scholarly process. You look depressed, Susan. No, I'm thinking. <laughs> well, it's always depressing to think how far we are from understanding consciousness. But now I was just mulling things over. I mean, I was going to ask you for an update on something that you know. 
there's a Templeton project on the hot zone versus the global workspace view. And of course, that the way I just phrased it, which is versus, describing it as an adversarial relationship could be wrong. And we've all suspected maybe there isn't an adversarial relationship. Well, but anyway, I was wondering zone. if you know how things are playing out with the research over there for, for yeah, that project. If the hot zone corresponds to the posterior cortex. Right. Uh, then it's wrong. So if the hot zone corresponds to the posterior cortex, then it is wrong. Then it is wrong because the the frontal cortex is heavily involved in a category of conscious experiences, which is feelings of knowing, uh, sometimes called FOKs. And we have nice evidence going way back from uh, Dan Schachter and a student of his called Merrill, uh, or Merrill, I'm not sure, uh, Schachter and Merrill, uh, probably at 1990, maybe eight. And they just did an fMRI study on the tip of the tongue experience. And the tip of the tongue experience is a classic example of feelings of knowing. And it turns out that the uh, TOT in their fMRI study uh, activated uh, frontal regions rather than posterior regions. And I think if you look more precisely, it'll turn out to be both. But the uh, particularly the the big metabolic activity was in the frontal regions. And the plausible reason for that is that this is not uh, closely tied to the sensory systems because it's frontal. Uh, and everything in front of the central sulcus is either motoric or it can even be abstract and, and so on. So, so you get all kinds of things happening frontally um, that also involve, I think, also fit a global workspace hypothesis, uh, but then you have to think in terms of different entities than the uh, qualitative uh, entities that uh, Ned Block likes to talk about. Uh, Bernie, from our previous conversations, I know that you're also interested in deeper understanding of higher states of consciousness. Uh, I think you have a paper on this uh, yeah. from 2013. Uh, the title of it, I think, is a Scientific Approach to Silent Consciousness. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. so, so the scientific uh, advances in, in technologies could point toward a much more positive outcomes than the ethical concerns yes. mentioned. Susan, what do you think are some of the really positive scientific advances as of right now? For machine consciousness or consciousness in general? Uh, let's say for machine consciousness first, and then maybe you can measure something about consciousness in general. Scientific advances for machine consciousness? I mean, <laughs> we don't know what machine consciousness is and if it could even happen. Um, but right now, there are some projects. What I've seen a lot of, and this has actually been going on for a really long time, but people don't appreciate it, is a use of the global workspace in the context of AGI building. So people like Yoshua Bengio and, and Bernie, you know, we've been at meetings at the Stanford Research Institute together about four years ago talking about this stuff too, right? Uh-huh. You know, if you're trying to build conscious machines because you think consciousness is correlated with general intelligence, which it seems to be, you know, if if it's um, if Bernie's theory is right, you know, I mean, 
as opposed to say the hot zone theory, for example. I mean, if Bernie's theory is right, you know, in the related uh, global neuronal workspace of Dehane and others, you know, it looks like if you can simulate those areas of the brain in AI, you might get smarter AI. Because notice that, like, you know, we've been talking a lot about the role of the prefrontal cortex, right? I mean, if you have, if it's the case, and who knows, right? We're all very open-minded about this. But I mean, if it's the case that the neural basis of consciousness implicates the global workspace and the regions of the brain that underlie consciousness, attention, and working memory in humans, then the strategy in the try to build AGI field, (laughs) right, is to try to mimic the neural basis. And this has been going on, though, for a really long time. I mean, Bernie, Mm -hmm. you and I know of Sam Franklin's work, right? He had his Ida system. I mean, that's got to be a dozen years old, right? Well, now that some of the bigger players, like the real, like, you know, Yoshua Bengio, for example, and the, you know, the Defense Department, they're really interested in this all of a sudden. It's like, duh. You know, Murray Shanahan and Bernie wrote a paper on this years ago in cognition, right? Yeah. So I think the that is, problem. I mean, in a way, it's a new development in that more and more people are trying to do it. But in another way, it's been around for a dozen years. Oh, I think it goes back to Aristotle. <laughs> oh, Hey, man, it goes back to the pre-Socratics. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. No, no, you're right. No. <laughs> Everything goes back to... Right, right, right. But, but but no, seriously, I mean, I don't know if that is really going to build AGI that is conscious, right? Um, another project that I think is really interesting is um, Manuel and Lenore Blum. They actually are in the Center for the Future Mind, as Bernie is as well, right? Mm-hmm. We're very honored uh, to have just such wonderful external fellows. And, you know, they're working on a similar project. You know, but it's funny because if you ask these people what they care about, they care about building general intelligence, right? But I've noticed mm-hmm. lately that Bengio will claim that then if you do it, you've got something with phenomenal consciousness which I'm Uh surprised to hear them say, you know, I'm far more skeptical. So the ultimate test, I think, is the baby test. I'm willing to throw away my iPhone, but I'm not willing to throw away a baby. (laughs) And that means something uh, about my beliefs about the consciousness of babies versus iPhones. It's like a trolley problem situation, right? Philosophers love trolley problems. I mean, see, that's the thing. Like when we're talking about machine consciousness, it's bad to admit machines to the club of consciousness if they're not conscious, because then you're throwing away the baby instead of the iPhone, right? right? Or whatever it is that you think. And this is a very significant issue. It's just as significant as ignoring... Oh, sure conscious machines saying they're not conscious. I mean, it's very, I mean, I've been working on some tests for machine consciousness. I wrote about some of those in my book, but I mean, I think we're going to need tests. The problem is that a lot of the tests really don't work on systems like Lambda when you've cooked in, you know, billions of words into 
you know, I see. Right. Lambda system from Wikipedia and everywhere across the internet so that right. it can freely generate all kinds of BS about any topic, <laughs> including consciousness. And, right. you know, since these deep learning systems are pretty much some of the most intelligent AIs that we know of, it's going to be very hard to run the tests that I created on them. Interesting. Here we are discussing machine consciousness. There's also parallel conversations about augmenting the way our biological processes work with projects like Neuralink. How far are we going to go with that? I don't know. But we have all these conversations taking place. Some people are actually eagerly awaiting for the artificial intelligence overlords to come and take over right. the course of humanity. Susan or Rachel, why do you think people are so eager to transcend human beings? Uh, personally, I'm not eager at all. Uh, I have a very, very strong opinion on this topic. Um, I And I voiced it before publicly. I think that it is probably the single most greatest threat to what we know humans to be and, and mankind uh, is to start augmenting our brains and try to augment our consciousness, if that's even possible, too early. I think at some point it will be necessary, but I think if we start doing that before we're ready, that will certainly destroy what it means to be a human as we know it. Uh, so, yeah, I, I'm not eager at all. I think people are eager in the same reason that we're eager to do anything incredibly dangerous and, and dumb as humans is because we can. And it's it's sometimes it's fun. Uh, that's, right. that's my right. hot take. <laughs> yeah, I, I very much agree with your sentiment. Uh, we may not agree completely on every proposition, but uh, I see the same danger. It's going to happen, though. I mean, you've got like Elon Musk working on it. He says he's going to start testing in humans soon. And you know, this has been going on for about a dozen years with that artificial hippocampus project, which is for great purpose to help people with memory loss. But, you know, Ted Berger, I think he's at phase two clinical trials in humans right now with this artificial hippocampus. Oh, I didn't know about this. Oh, oh yeah. It's very exciting, actually. I mean, the hippocampus, as you know, is relative to much of the brain, well understood. I said relative, though, of course, we don't understand the brain at all. But, you know, they can look at the algorithms computed by different regions in the hippocampus and put together a very coarse simulation with results, though. It's really exciting. Rachel, you know, to your point, I mean, it's these kinds of projects which are going to mean that the hot mess of brain enhancement is coming to our door, sadly. And I agree. It, while exciting in the context of the therapeutic uses of these technologies, the enhancement uses are very dystopian in what they could bring. Like, I mean, you know, there's been science fiction literature about this, like, you know, William Gibson and, you know, Rudy Rutger. And so I think it's not difficult to foresee the abuses right, of these kinds of technologies. And, you know, I worry about it, especially in the context of what I sketched earlier with the global brain scenario and, you know, humans being wired to the web and manipulated in a way that social media manipulates people now. I mean, if, if exactly. we're doing that, yes. then it, it becomes an issue of, you know, surveillance 
thought, what I call thought data is now the new data and the possible manipulation of our behavior. Um, I've been meaning to write a paper on this called My Chip Made Me Do It to talk about the free will issue. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but it's just such a good topic. It has to be done, right? Right. Rachel, maybe you want to do that one with me. <laughs> yeah, I I would love to. I, I, and I agree. I think the therapy uses are great. I think where we get into issues is it's, I mean, it's a very similar thing to genetic engineering where uh, extremely undeniably wealthy uh, individuals and families have access to a different kind of health care uh, where you can genetically engineer your next baby to be of a very different, uh, very hand curated and picked type, right? You can choose the aesthetics, you can choose the hair color, eye color, you can start to choose different types of uh, psychological profiles, right? And and this, the same thing is going to be true of like these upgrades for our brains, right? You can get the best medicine or I don't know if we're calling this medicine still, but transhumanist implants, uh, depending on how much access you have to the most expensive things that are just emerging, which is why I think it becomes scary when it's abused in in that way, Uh, which is why I think AGI is so important because I think it it could help us um, kind of out of that dark transition period. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, One of the things that keeps on coming back to me, and you know more about this, uh, Susan and Rachel, uh, and maybe Ilian, I've thought that AI people in general have been neglecting the very obvious ethical questions. Now, you obviously know people who have not been neglecting those questions, but uh, if you look at earlier developments, uh, I, I think about Alfred Nobel, for example, who uh, continues to fund the Nobel Prize, actually, the Peace Prize, but in fact, uh, he invented dynamite. Uh, and then made so much money, especially in World War I, where dynamite was used to blow up uh, maybe a million human beings, or maybe more than a million human beings. And I think he he felt so guilty, or uh, he felt so, uh, so much in the need of at least a public expression of compensation of some kind, so that he funded the Nobel Prizes. But in a sense, that was backwards, right? Because the ethical thinking about that should have been done before the uh, dynamite was marketed, uh, because it's too late. Uh, once you market it, once, you, once the secret is out, and so on. And so it's occurred to me that um, what AI people maybe have to do is do something like the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, I think it's, it's called, and it's still running, but it doesn't seem to be doing anything quite relevant as far as I can tell. I only superficially sampled it every now and then. I, I really do think that scientists have an obligation and technologists have an obligation. And then all kinds of other people will come in, of course. But because scientists and technologists can predict the future, including dystopian futures, a lot better than people who don't know anything about the field. Uh, I think we have a special responsibility. That is a very good point, Bernie. And I do want to be mindful of uh, Susan's and Rachel's time. 
Thank um, you. I wanted yeah. to ask uh, everybody here if they have any final thoughts they want to share with us. And Susan and Rachel, if you can tell our, our listeners where they can find you, uh, what you're currently working on. Susan, I'll start with you. Sure. So that was a really interesting conversation. And um, it's always great, Bernie, to hear the latest on GW. And it's always great uh, to interact with you, Rachel. It's so nice to meet you, Ilian. Great questions. So I'm over at the Center for the Future Mind worrying about this stuff <laughs> and also having a lot of fun. And I'm there with Rachel and a great team. And we, oh gosh, we're having a grand opening in a few months. We just opened up. So I'd like to invite you all to our grand opening. Bernie, maybe you could come out, um, which is... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about it. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I'm going to send out the schedule um, so you can see it. And I've got, I, I'm almost done with it, believe it or not. Um, so it's, the conference is in March. It's called MindFest. Um, and we'll be talking about all these issues and more. Uh, you know, we have speakers, uh, Ben Gertzel, David Chalmers. We have like the head of cybersecurity at National Intelligence University. So we're doing a lot of global brain stuff in a very dystopian way. You know, um, we'll have a session on machine consciousness, Bernie. Um, oh, good. Yeah. And a lot of it will be free floating so that, you know, rather than forcing people to listen to papers, it will be giving people a chance to just communicate. Right. Right. Anyway, so that's what we're up to. I'm, I'm writing a book on the future of intelligence. So I'm busy trying to make a deadline. Right. And how about you, Rachel? Yeah, I think Susan wrapped us up perfectly. But likewise, it was really fun conversation with you Bernie and Ilian and of course Susan I'm like Susan said at the Center for Future Mind I also uh, am heading a, a startup company called Simuli where we're making hardware for AGI that accelerates uh, some of the math that has been left out of the deep learning revolution that's going on to make AI more human-like. So that's my current project and, and what I'm working on. And uh, it was super awesome getting to chat about all this futuristic stuff with you guys. I hope we can continue the conversation uh, moving forward. Yeah, um, I sure would like to do that also. Uh, I told you that I started off as a great AI enthusiast and then learned a lot. And GW came out of that, actually, uh, as well as a ton of actual evidence, which was necessary because the theory wasn't enough by itself. Um, and then I got into a more dystopian mood, uh, which is what I've brought to you with apologies. Uh, and I'm looking forward to getting more uh, optimistic about all this because there must be all kinds of wonderful applications, of course, that will do great things. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm very much eager to, to get back into the enthusiasm part of it. At the very least, the conference will be on the beach and there'll be lots of alcohol. Oh. <laughs> I've given up on the, oh, the doom and gloom will end soon. And let's end on an optimistic note. <laughs> Okay. That's, that sounds good. Thanks so much, everybody. This was a great conversation once again. Great. Thank you.
to show our appreciation, we are offering our listeners a 50% discount for any edition of Bernie's book on consciousness, science, and subjectivity, updated works on global workspace theory. Just go to shop.thenautiluspress.com, spelled S-H-O-P dot T-H-E-N-A-U-T-I-L-U-S-P-R-E-S-S dot com. And be sure to enter the word books, B-O-O-K-S, in the coupon code box during checkout for that extra 50% savings. Of course, Bernie's books are available everywhere books are sold, although your 50% discount is only available in the Nautilus shop. If you'd like to discover more about the conscious brain and learn more about global workspace functions, please visit Bernie's new website at bernardbars.com. And I'm going to spell that also. B-E-R-N-A-R-D-B-A-A-R-S dot com. And thank you for listening.